Hello, ABC Church, and welcome to today's service. Before we hop into it, I want to tell you about two things coming up. The first one is for all you dads, and it's called Intentional Fathering. It's an opportunity for you to come alongside other like-minded dads around open table discussions, get some resources and some tips practically for how to intentionally pour into your children. It's going to be held Wednesday, June 7th at 7 p.m. in our worship center, and you don't need to sign up. You just need to show up. We hope to see you there. The second one I have is for the whole church, and it is our whole church lunch. If you're watching this on Sunday morning, you might be able to make it still. It's going to be after our 1045 service, and it costs $5 a plate or 20 bucks for the whole family. Come on down. That's all for me. So here's Pastor Jero with today's message. Hi, ABC family. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're so glad you're with us. We trust that you had a faithful Memorial Day celebration and that uh, this weekend that you're tuning in and eager to hear from the Lord and eager to grow in your understanding of who He is and what His plan is for you. My name is Gerald. I have the privilege of serving as discipleship pastor here at ABC. And maybe something you didn't know about me is that some of my favorite TV shows or movies are those that include spies. I love it when I, I see a movie that has the FBI or the CIA or the Secret Service interacting with spies from other countries. Um, there, it seems like there's always a, a passport, a counterfeit passport at, at stake, right? Because the passport is what is required to move from country to country, and spies do that all covertly. So one thing that I've observed from watching some of these movies or TV shows over the years is that the people who are able to spot a counterfeit are those who have become really experts in a genuine article. And why do I bring this up? Because today we're going to continue to preach our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we come to Matthew 16 where we see Jesus encounter some religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he essentially calls them out as counterfeits, as fakes. And so today, as we dive in and look back at this, I just want us to have that in our mind. If we're going to be able to spot a counterfeit, if we're going to be able to spot a fake, we need to be able to know the genuine article. We need to know what we're looking for. So let's pause, let's pray, and then we'll turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, and we'll read the first four verses. Father, we come to you this morning, and we just ask your blessing. As we open and read your word, would you tune our ears to your voice and would you by your Holy Spirit guide us into the truth as you promised? Would you reveal yourself to us, Jesus, and show us what your plan is for us? We pray this in your matchless name. Amen. So reading from Matthew 16, beginning at verse 1, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So right here in the first four verses of Matthew chapter 16, we see Jesus highlighting somebody who is lacking faith. He is being confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now these are Jewish political parties in his day. The Pharisees are among the largest of these 
political parties. There's about 6,000 members in the Pharisees, and their name means the separated ones. They're the largest and the most influential religious political party of the New Testament times. Now, contrasting the Pharisees, we have the Sadducees. They're another influential party, and they are opposing to the Pharisees in almost every aspect. They are the aristocrats of their day, and their name means the righteous ones. So the way my mind works is I love charts. So I, I did some research, and I'm building a chart here to help us understand the perspective that these two uh, religious parties had in Jesus' day. So we're going to look at the area that they controlled. We see here that the Pharisees controlled the synagogues in the local towns, and through the synagogues, they had control over the general Jewish population. Contrasting that, the Sadducees had control over the temple in Jerusalem and all the related services around the sacrificial system. Looking at the class, the socioeconomic class, the Pharisees were mostly middle-class people. They were self-employed, blue-collar workers. But the Sadducees, they were, they were the rich. They were the economic elite. In terms of their perspective on the authoritative writings, the Pharisees believed that the entire Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings were authoritative and inspired by God, whereas the Sadducees only recognized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament that were written by Moses. In terms of their approach or perspective on the law, the Pharisees believed in the written law, and then they added to that their own oral tradition or their oral law. Whereas the Sadducees, they didn't look at the entire Old Testament, right? They were only focused on the first five books written by Moses, and they had no regard for the Pharisees' oral law. In terms of divine revelation, the Pharisees, we could say that they were those who added to the Scripture, but the Sadducees were those who had reduced Scripture only to five books. In terms of their perspective on reality, the Pharisees believed in a spirit world that included angels and demons, but the Sadducees believed in a physical life only. They had a, a materialistic view of life. In terms of the afterlife, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, and after the resurrection, there would be reward and consequence for how life was lived on earth. But the Sadducees did not believe in a re resurrection. They didn't believe that there was any kind of consequence in the, in the life to come for how they lived on this life. Now, their approach to life, the Pharisees were legalistic. They were self-righteous. It was about a, a list of rules of do's and don'ts in their relationship with God. And in contrast to that, the Sadducees lived a life of license. They did whatever they felt was right, and they were self-reliant. So, and then in terms of politics, the Pharisees opposed Rome and the influence of the pagans over the Jewish community but the Sadducees, they embraced Rome. They supported Rome. They loved the status quo. As long as their power and their influence was not being threatened in any way, they didn't mind. So as you can tell, as we look through this whole chart, these two political parties are about as opposite as you can imagine. But on their perspective of Jesus, they both stand unified in opposing him. The Pharisees opposed Jesus because he refused their oral law, their oral tradition. He spoke against it. But the Sadducees opposed Jesus because he was a threat to their wealth and to their power. 
So these two parties, vastly different, seeing differently on almost every aspect of life, but the one thing they do agree on is they come and they oppose Jesus together because of their own selfish reasons. These two parties can't seem to agree on anything, but they both oppose Jesus because he threatens something that they hold near and dear in their hearts. The Pharisees oppose Jesus because he refuses to recognize their oral law and their and their rules on how to relate to God that they have come up with on their own and added to Scripture. But the Sadducees oppose Jesus because of his message being a threat to their position of power and authority and wealth. So despite coming at this from different angles, we see that both parties have reduced the relationship between God and mankind to a list of external religious ideas. They were lacking faith. Now, when I say they were lacking faith, what do I mean by that? Biblical faith is something that is congruent or equivalent to belief or personal trust in something or someone. Now, the object of the faith is what determines its strength. And what we're talking about here biblically is having personal trust in the God who spoke the universe into existence. The Bible tells us that faith is essential to having a personal relationship with God. Listen to Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, we must believe that God not only exists, but that he actually cares for and rewards people who seek him. God has always rewarded his people on the basis of faith. When Abram and Sarai were still barren, the Lord had promised that they would have a child. And he took Abram outside and he said, Look at the stars of the sky, and if you can count them, so shall your descendants be. And in Genesis 15, verse 6, this is recorded. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abram had faith and believed what God had told him would happen. And God counted that faith, that belief in what he had said as righteousness to Abram's account. Faith and faith alone is the means of right standing with God. It always has been and it always will be. In the New Testament, Paul preaches of faith as means of salvation. You know these verses from Ephesians 2. Verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, faith is the vehicle by which we have access to God's grace. Therefore, we continue to preach this same gospel, holding up Jesus as the only person who has ever lived a life that is acceptable to God. Jesus never once sinned, and yet he gave his life and he shed his blood on the cross at Calvary, making payment for the sins of all humanity in the only currency that's acceptable by God, human blood, so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Faith, it saves us from the penalty and the power of sin. Do you have it? Do you have this saving faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
as your substitute. That is the basis on which God looks at you and declares you righteous. The Pharisees and the Sadducees lacked it. They lacked faith. But how did Jesus know? What were these religious parties doing out of their lack of faith? The text says that the Pharisees had come from Jerusalem to question Jesus about his apparent unwillingness to keep their oral tradition. We see that in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And the Pharisees continue to be offended by Jesus' teaching. We see that later on in chapter 15. And now the Pharisees from Jerusalem are joined by the Sadducees, also from Jerusalem, and together they're coming and they're seeking a sign from heaven, a sign that would validate in their minds that Jesus indeed had been sent by God. The text says that they came to test him. And this word that is translated as test is the same word that is used to describe what Jesus endured in the desert under Satan. Satan tempted Jesus, told him to command these stones and turn them into bread in the midst of his hunger. This kind of a test, this kind of temptation is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are are doing with Jesus. And Jesus notices that they are able to interpret the signs of the heavens. Listen again to verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. Now, you may have heard the old saying that red skies at night, sailors delight. Red skies in the morning, sailors warning, right? So here they are, these political parties, these members of the religious elite, they are able to interpret the signs of what is about to happen in the heavens, what is about to happen with the weather on the earth, but they are not able to recognize the signs of the times, despite being religious scholars, right? They had failed to recognize that John the Baptist had fulfilled some key Old Testament prophecies. Malachi 3 verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. It's John the Baptist who goes out into the wilderness and baptizes and preaches a baptism of repentance in the Jordan River. The prophet Isaiah records this in 40, chapter 40, verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy as well. He was the one who had gone before Jesus and prepared the way by preaching a baptism of repentance. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees had both failed to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah that they were looking for. They knew how to look at the sky and to determine what was about to happen on earth weather-wise, but they were not able to interpret the signs of the times and determine what was about to happen on earth with regard to the kingdom of God. One scholar paraphrased Jesus in this way. He says, you guys make better weathermen than theologians. (laughs) Well, this is true, and that would have been a stinging rebuke to them. You see, it was their lack of faith that led the Sadducees to ignore the bulk of God's revelation. It was, it was them who decided they only were going to look at the first five books of the Bible and regard those as authoritative. Even so, they could have responded to those five books in faith and had a relationship with God, just like their ancestor Abraham had done. But alas, they lacked faith. 
Their empty religion was counterfeit. It was not the genuine article. It was not trust. It was not the means of relationship that pleases God. It was also a lack of faith that had blinded the Pharisees. They read all of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings. But these guys also failed to respond to God's revelation in faith, in personal trust. Instead, they added their own opinion of how to please God by adding on the oral law or the oral tradition. Once again, their self-made religion was a counterfeit. It was lacking faith, the genuine trust that God requires. So Jesus tells them that they are better weathermen than theologians. And this stinging rebuke only serves to steal their opposition against Jesus. And what are the results of this? We see in the second half of verse 4, No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. And this is the second time that Matthew has recorded Jesus giving this kind of an answer to the Pharisees as they ask for a sign. The first time they asked was in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. And Jesus says then, No sign will be given to you, that evil and adulterous generation, except the sign of Jonah. This Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. And then after that time, he was raised out or spit out onto dry ground and affirmed as God's chosen one to deliver a message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. In like manner, Jesus will be three days in the heart of the earth. He will be raised again and affirmed as God's chosen one for all the people. The Pharisees and Sadducees ask for a sign, and we sometimes ask for a sign too, don't we? Sometimes we say, God, if you really love me, you will just fill in the blank. Or God, if you do this, then I will do that. We tend to make bargains with the Lord. But God looks at us and he says, my dear child, I do love you. And if you ever doubt it, just look back at my only son, Jesus, dying on the cross. This is recorded for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the definitive demonstration of God's love for every one of us. This is the only sign that he said that he would give to that evil and adulterous generation that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were part of. And this is the only sign that you and I need today as well. Because when we respond to this good news in faith, we're declared righteous in God's eyes. We receive forgiveness for our sin, and we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our salvation. We find freedom from the penalty and freedom from the power of sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you responded to Jesus in faith? He has given the only sign that we need. After telling them, that the only sign they will get is the sign of Jonah, Jesus leaves them. The text says that he departed. So Jesus leaves those who were lacking faith, and Matthew continues to record Jesus' life and ministry by giving us another look back at the disciples. These men stand in contrast to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as people of little faith. Read with me, beginning at verse 5. Matthew 16, verse 5. 
When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember that the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? And here we have the disciples, people of little faith. These are the same 12 guys that have been following Jesus since the beginning of his ministry. They're the same guys who back in chapter 13 or 14 in that storm-tossed boat, they thought that Jesus was a ghost. They got him wrong. Jesus called them, oh, you of little faith, back then in that, in that boat. And he says that same attribute to them here in this passage. And this stands in direct contrast to the Canaanite woman from last week's passage, who was said to have had a great faith. Instead of getting Jesus wrong, she humbly requested his mercy. She respectfully called him Lord. She repeatedly requests, Lord, help. In other words, like Jeff said, she refuses to take no for an answer. She presses Jesus by alluding to the extended blessings promised to the Gentiles through Abraham. In a very clear and respectful manner, she reminds Jesus of God's promise, and she pressures him to be true to his word. She refuses to take no for an answer. And she received a miracle in response to her great faith. So the disciples in this passage stand somewhere between this Canaanite woman who is said to have had a great faith and these Sadducees and Pharisees who are said to have be lacking faith. The disciples are those of little faith at this point. So what are these disciples doing? Verse 5 says that they forgot to bring bread. That's the context behind all that is happening. And in light of what has just happened with the religious leaders, Jesus instructs his disciples with a word of wisdom. And he says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But all the disciples can think about was their stomachs. We got no bread. That's all that they keep talking about. And Jesus knows about their conversation. And he says this about their concerns. Verse 8, Jesus says, You of little faith, Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak to you about bread? And here we receive from Jesus a shotgun blast of five questions that probed their hearts and exposed that yet again they had failed to remember who Jesus is. He is the provider whose provision sometimes includes leftovers. In other words, a lack of bread ain't their problem. Jesus is with them. But we can have a similar experience, can't we? In an hour of desperation, we call out to God. He comes through and then just moments later, we find ourselves yet again 
in a perceived lack of physical provision, and there we find ourselves back in the pit of despair. A couple of weeks ago, I, I let you in on how God showed up and was our provider while we went through seminary. Right when our bank account was running on empty, God provided a full-time job with medical benefits and a tuition waiver that covered our tuition needs. Not very long, just a few months after his beautiful provision in that way, the SWAT team showed up one night and arrested one of our neighbors for dealing drugs. And we immediately began to plan our exit strategy from being residents of that building. We just didn't think it seemed wise to have a family of five living in a little two-bedroom apartment surrounded by drug-dealing neighbors. And so we began to look at renting houses and move out of that place. And three different times, through no fault of our own, we had everything in order, but three different times God closed the door on three different houses. When they should have gone to us, everything was in order. It was just like God was slamming those doors shut about as fast as we were trying to kick them open. Eventually, we finally came to the realization that God had us exactly where he wanted us to be. And so we began to get to know our scary neighbors. We began to lean in. We began to believe that God could use us right where he had placed us. And over the next few years, we had the privilege of seeing some of those scary neighbors profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You see, in their little faith, the disciples had failed to recognize that their greatest threat was not a lack of physical food, but it was an abundance of spiritual junk food. It wasn't a lack of bread, but it was an environment that was ripe with false teaching that was their biggest threat. And the result was that they finally understood that Jesus is telling them to look out for this false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not to look out for bread. And here we come out to our third point, which is we need to look out for leaven. And we pick this up in verses 11, the second half of verse 11, where Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Leaven is yeast. It is what causes a lump of dough to rise. And Jesus has used leaven in the past to describe how the kingdom of heaven grows. He says, just like a, a little lump of leaven will saturate and cause three lumps of dough to grow, this leaven of the kingdom changes everything that it touches. In that instance, as he described that in that parable in Matthew 13, that's a positive representation of, of leaven. But it is more common for leaven to be seen as a negative idea in the New Testament. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus says this. He says, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So here, he's even calling out this leaven that he tells them to beware of as hypocrisy. They had reduced righteousness to outward washings, and they'd ignored God's desire for purity of heart. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. They had a mentality of do as I say, not as I do. And in today's passage, Jesus uses leaven to represent the false teaching that corrupts faith by misrepresenting God. It's subtle, but it's pervasive. 
And it's interesting that Jesus says the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Remember, back to that chart, these two parties saw almost everything on opposite ends of the spectrum. But Jesus here in this statement of of watch and beware, he lumps them together. The Pharisees were those who added to God's word. The Sadducees subtracted from it. The Pharisees were a gospel plus theology. The Sadducees were a gospel minus theology, one of cheap grace, one of license, one of no consequences. The Pharisees, when you think Pharisees, think legalism, think an emphasis on outward appearance, and think external purity. But when you think of the Sadducees, think license, sensual indulgence, and political power. And Jesus' Jesus' message to his disciples, watch and beware. Watch and beware for this leaven. They were to keep their eyes open and to look out and steer clear of it. And Jesus' words to them apply to us today as well. Now, I confess to you that I have not personally met a Sadducee or a Pharisee, but as the author of Ecclesiastes said, there's nothing new under the sun. And just because we may not meet a Pharisee or a Sadducee doesn't mean that we too don't need to keep watch out and beware of such false teaching. See, the primary error in both cases is not that they were part of some Jewish socio-political sect, but that they had imported their own personal bias of how to relate to God into their religious practice. The core problem for both parties was a matter located in their heart. And before we pat ourselves on the back, we need to remind ourselves that our leading political parties are not much better. We can't even figure out how to set and maintain a budget. Lord help us. I love America, but I am so glad that I have not put my faith, hope, and trust in the political system of America, but I've put it in Jesus Christ and Him alone. We are in no less danger of such corrupting influence today. So what do we do? How do we look out for leaven? We need to recognize that false teaching is our greatest threat too. Now you may feel like your greatest threat to your well-being is something financial. With all of this inflation, it can even be hard just to afford going to the grocery store. Maybe just like the disciples in this passage, you have bread on the mind as well. Where am I going to get my next meal? And as serious as these threats are, Jesus would have us believe that the effect of false teaching is even more serious. Eternity is at stake. So how do we recognize leaven today? There's three things. One, we need to know our Bible. God's word is objective truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is why core value number two here at Atascadero Bible Church reads like this. We will become committed to knowing and teaching the Bible. We will seek to study, teach, memorize, and obey God's word, knowing that it is the most tangible tool for transformation. We will uphold the Bible as absolute truth. This is also why our discipleship plan includes people reading in small groups or one-on-one God's word together and using a set of simple exegetical questions to help us understand what it is saying so that we can obey it. Like our customs officers, if we are going to be able to detect 
the false thing. If we are going to defect, detect a counterfeit, we need to study and know the genuine article. We, church, must know our Bibles. Then we need to ask three simple questions. Does what I'm hearing align with what God says in his word? Does this teaching, what I'm hearing, apply to people of every race and socioeconomic status? And thirdly, will obeying this teaching make me more like Jesus? If the answer to one or more of these questions is no, then we need to look out. It's probably leaven. So let's try this out. Someone may say, God helps those who help themselves. That sounds right, sounds good. It appeals to my American work ethic, right? God helps those who help themselves. First question, does this align with what God has said to us in his word? Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 5 say something like this, you were dead in your sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were dead. Dead people cannot help themselves. Jesus says in John 15, 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So no, this teaching does not line up with what God has revealed about himself and about us in his word. Second question, does this teaching apply to people of every race and socioeconomic status? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that all are dead in their sins apart from faith. So yes, the unbiblical nature of this false teaching applies to all. Third question, will obeying this teaching make me more like Jesus? John 5.19 says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Folks, if Jesus can't do anything of his own accord, then neither can we. So no, obeying this teaching would not make me more like Jesus. God does not help those who help themselves. This self-help statement sounds a lot like leaven to me. So there's one example. What about another? Recently, um, we have mourned the death of Pastor Tim Keller. And one of his quotes that is famous these days is, all death can do now to Christians is to make their lives infinitely better. So let's run this through the test. Does this align with what God has revealed to us through his word? The Bible teaches that a day is coming when Jesus will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The former things will have passed away. Revelation 21 reveals that this happens in the future on the new earth and the new heavens. So yes, this aligns with what Jesus reveals in his word. Second question, does this teaching apply to people of every race and socioeconomic status? Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. So everybody will die and then be judged. And in Matthew 5.11 and 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Yes, a great reward is waiting in heaven for all Christians when they die. Third question, will obeying this teaching make me more like Jesus? Philippians 3.10 says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So yes, death is one of the ways that we become more like Jesus. So Keller's statement sounds like biblical teaching to me, not leaven. So this is how we can look for leaven out there in the world. But just like the error of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was a matter of the heart, we need to look out for leaven in our hearts as well. We can use these same three questions to evaluate our thought life. What's the narrative that goes on in our mind that we're tempted to believe? Is it true? Does it line up with scripture? Or is it false? Is it a counterfeit? What's the basis of my relationship with God? Do I believe that he is pleased with me based on my performance? Or do I believe that he's pleased with me on the basis of my faith? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Maybe you're tempted to believe that I've done so much so wrong that I could never be forgiven. Or I could never even forgive myself for these things. We need to hold that up against the teaching of God's word that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I invite you now just to join me in prayer, just to bow your head and join me in prayer and examine your heart, examine your mind, see what is going on in there and and run it through the grid of these three questions. Take your personal experience and hold it up to the truth of God's word and allow God's word to expose a counterfeit. Repent and trust and rise up in faith and walk and live out this life that God has for you. Father, we come to you now and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to to evaluate even our thoughts to take a good, honest look at our hearts and our understanding of how we relate to you, what it means to be in good standing with our relationship with you. Lord, would you you wean us from this idea of we need to perform in order to earn your declaration of righteousness? And would you help us to believe that Jesus is our substitute, he is our good enough, and that on the basis of faith, we are loved, accepted, and brought into your family. And then we are freed and empowered by your Holy Spirit to do good works, to walk in those good works that you created beforehand for us. So Lord, show us what it looks like to have this faithful balance, to have true, genuine faith. Not to be lacking faith or people of little faith, but to be having true, genuine, great faith, because you are our great Savior. So we submit ourselves to you. We pray that you would have your way in our thinking and in our lives, and that you would be glorified by that. We pray this, Jesus, in your matchless name. Thanks again for tuning in. I have one final comment from 1 John, verse 5. The Apostle John writes, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? May you go forth this week believing that Jesus is the Son of God and find victory over the world. Amen.